when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Britain's vaccine program suffered a setback this week when questions were raised about the use of the Oxford AstraZeneca jab among younger people. You know, if you sail a massive liner across the Atlantic, then it's not really reasonable that you um, aren't going to have to make at least one course correction during that voyage. Welcome to Payne's Politics. And while Seb's off finishing his book on the Labour Red Wall, welcome to a one-off edition of Parker's Politics with me, George Parker. You heard there Jonathan Van Tam, Deputy Chief Medical Officer, deploying his best bedside manner to reassure people that a change of guidance on the use of the AZ jab for the under-30s was only a course correction, not a serious setback. We'll be looking at what the decision by the UK's medical regulator means for the vaccine effort with the FT's science editor, Clive Cookson, and my colleague in the lobby, Jasmine Cameron-Shileshi. And later, we'll also be casting an eye over the violent disturbances in Northern Ireland over the last week, the worst in recent years, with Jonathan Powell, Tony Blair's chief negotiator ahead of the 1998 Good Friday Agreement, and the FT's Peter Foster. What's behind the trouble? So, this week, Britain's stellar vaccination programme hit its first significant hurdle when the country's regulators recommended that under-30s be offered an alternative to the Oxford AstraZeneca jab due to evidence linking it to rare blood clots. The recommendation came after a review by the UK drugs regulator found that by the end of March, 79 people had suffered rare blood clots after vaccination, 19 of whom had died. This is what Boris Johnson had to say. People should uh, come forward uh, to get their jabs and we'll make sure that they get the right jabs. And of course, uh, I I don't see any reason at at, at this stage at all to uh, think we need to to deviate uh, from the roadmap. And uh, we're also very secure about about our supply. Clive Cookson, first of all, can you just remind us exactly what the regulators said and whether we should be concerned? It's all rather complicated. The MHRA, which is the main regulator, said that the link between these very rare blood disorders, a mixture of thrombosis and low platelet counts, 79 of them so far, as you said, are very, very likely to be linked with the AstraZeneca vaccine. The proof isn't absolute, but the MHRA and its counterpart, the European Medicines Agency, say it's, they didn't use this word, but they meant almost proven. But it is very, very rare. The risk is, I think, Matt Hancock, the health secretary, said it was equivalent to the risk of getting thrombosis on a long-distance air flight. Nicola Sturgeon in Scotland said it was as safe still as crossing the road. So then the Joint Committee on Vaccination and Immunisation, which recommends the actual operational details of the vaccine's rollout, it said that although 
any adult of any age could still get the AstraZeneca vaccine, those under 30 should be offered either the Pfizer vaccine or the Moderna vaccine, which is just beginning to come into the UK supply chain. But Clive, was the UK too slow to act, given that these concerns have been well known in other parts of Europe for weeks? And why do you think we took a different view to the European Medicines Agency, which stopped short of saying that the use of this vaccine should be restricted? It was not necessarily too slow to act, but it was too slow to communicate. There was a real communications vacuum, particularly over the Easter weekend, which I think harmed vaccine confidence. It was probably reasonable for it to wait until there was enough evidence for it to say something on Tuesday that was reasonably firm. But I think it should have told all the worried people before. I think the European regulator, the EMA, is more or less in step with the MHRA. The discrepancy doesn't come within those two regulators. It comes with the national health authorities and vaccine committees, the JCVI here and all sorts of vaccination committees in Europe. The reason why our committee said only under 30 should people be offered the other vaccines Well, there are two main reasons. One is the supply chain. It sounds as though if everyone under 30 chooses not to have AstraZeneca, but Pfizer or Moderna, the UK supply chain will more or less cope. We can probably still vaccinate every adult who wants a jab by the end of the summer. The other thing is that people in this country have more confidence in vaccines in general And in particular, they're less hesitant about AstraZeneca. So I think the answer is a mixture of politics, availability of vaccines, and although you'd never get a regulator to say this, there is a sort of national attachment in this country to the Oxford AstraZeneca. Now, Jasmine, how do you think the government's handled this? There was a bit of frustration in Downing Street that news of this decision leaked out 48 hours before the official announcement. Do you think the politicians have got the messaging right? I think the government has been put in quite a tricky position on this because it's quite a nuanced position to convey that the AstraZeneca vaccine is on the whole safe, but the risks of blood clotting outweigh the benefits for younger people. It was a good move to put Jonathan Van Tam front and centre at the joint MHRA-JCVI press conference earlier this week because I think he is a trusted face. He's known for his metaphors and football analogies and he was able to communicate quite a tricky position in a very nuanced and level-headed way. But I think it was a mistake for the government not to follow up that press conference with another Downing Street briefing with Jonathan Van Tam to really hammer home this message to the public. Now, we know that confidence in the vaccines is slightly higher in the UK, especially when we look to countries in Europe. But I think risk is a very difficult thing to communicate and how much risk an individual is willing to accept is a deeply personal thing. And it would be very easy for people to come away from this week thinking, Pfizer and Moderna vaccine, good, AstraZeneca vaccine, bad. And I think the government was really on the back foot in terms of the messaging. And ironically enough, I think the most effective messaging on this issue didn't actually come from the government, but from the family of someone called Neil Lascelles. So he's the solicitor who died from a blood clot in the brain after taking the vaccine. And his family have come forward and they've voiced their heartbreak at losing a family member, but also said that they would still encourage people to take the jab and they would encourage people not to get scared. And they've been the most effective voice on this issue, not the government. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And Justin, what does this mean for the wider rollout of the vaccine programme? We're obviously going to be 
relying on imports from EU countries, Belgium in the case of Pfizer, Spain in the case of Moderna, to stay on track. Are there concerns in government circles about supplies? I think the government is pretty confident that this shift in announcement from the regulators won't actually change the speed of the vaccination rollout. The NHS has vaccinated around 32 million people in the UK. The aim is still to vaccinate all adults by the end of July. And we also had the good news this week that the Moderna vaccine is being rolled out first in Wales, and then it should be rolled out throughout the rest of the country. And I think it's important to remember that the UK ordered around 400 million doses of vaccines from seven different companies. So we've got a vast amount of vaccines that are you know, being used in the country. I think the biggest worry is the impact of the announcement on vaccine hesitancy and public confidence. I think the announcement from the regulator marks a bit of a shift in the rollout, because until now, you weren't able to choose what vaccination you had. You'd turn up and you'd accept whatever vaccine was available and you'd be grateful. Now there's a danger that, say, if you're in your early 30s, you know, maybe you want to wait for an alternative to the AstraZeneca vaccine and maybe you'll wait for a few weeks. Maybe if you've had the first dose, you won't have the second. And so I think there is that worry. And whether or not that worry actually materialises, I think will become clearer in the next coming weeks. Mm. Now, Clive, how confident are you that Britain will be able to hit its vaccination targets in the coming months? I think that... The hesitancy that Jasmine has been referring to is going to be a factor. Supplies are also a bit of an issue because we rely on imports from the EU and from India and elsewhere. I personally think that everyone who wants a jab will have received one by the end of August unless more bad news comes out. But I think the take-up in the lower age groups is going to be very disappointing. The government and its medical advisors, Jonathan Van Tam, Chris Whitty et al., are going to have to do a lot more than they have to bolster vaccine confidence without just seeming to be thoughtless cheerleaders. It's a delicate balance. And I was quite impressed by one of the charts that was shown at the briefing on Tuesday, where they did actually graphically show the immensely greater risk of dying or having a serious illness from COVID if you were not vaccinated than suffering one of these severe side effects. Even for people in their 30s, there was a very big difference. Down in the 20s, that depends on how much COVID is around. That sort of nice graphic and good analogies will be needed in the future. Great, Clive. Now, I know you've had one shot of the Pfizer vaccine already. Um, but finally, Jasmine, ask you, um, you are in that demographic, you're under, aged under 30. You're not prevented from having an AstraZeneca vaccine when your turn comes. Would you be reluctant to have one now, knowing what you know? I don't think it would make much of a difference. And I think my view isn't massively unusual, especially among those in the 18 to 29 demographic. We've been hard hit, you know, by the pandemic in terms of having to study at home, in terms of having to navigate the workplace at home. So I think I, I'm just very eager to get vaccinated and get back to normal. And I think any vaccine will do at this point. Next to Northern Ireland, where the scenes of intercommunal violence, rioting and burning vehicles were this week a grim reminder of darker days, which many in the region had hoped were part of the past. Police said the rioting in Belfast on Wednesday night, particularly in West Belfast, where unionist and nationalist communities are separated by a so-called peace wall, 
was on a scale not seen in Northern Ireland for years. Over 50 police officers have been injured. This was Arlene Foster, Northern Ireland's first minister and leader of the Democratic Unionist Party. But if the rule of law is to mean anything, uh, it is that everybody is equal under the law and everybody has to be equally subject to the law. So I say to young people who are angry at this moment in time, do not get yourself a criminal record. Please, please desist from this violence. There is a better way and the way is through politics. Brexit has been cited as one of the sparks for the latest violence, specifically Boris Johnson's decision to put a trade border down the Irish Sea. But was this about politics or just plain thuggery? Peter Foster has been writing brilliantly for the FT about the interface between Brexit and Northern Ireland. And Jonathan Powell was an architect of the Good Friday Agreement. Peter, first, could you just explain what's been going on? Well, you know, there's sort of two causes going on in the background here, George. You know, since January... There is no doubt that the unionist community has become increasingly upset over the implementation of this Northern Irish Protocol, this trade border in the Irish Sea. And that's been going on in the background. And over the last few months, the attitudes have been hardening. So Arlene Foster started in January by saying it was a gateway of opportunity, but now has joined all the unionist parties in saying they want the protocol scrapped. So that was going on in the background. But the more proximate cause was a decision by the public prosecutor not to prosecute Sinn Féin leaders for attending a funeral of a former IRA leader, Bobby Storey, at the end of March. And that, coupled with some disaffected loyalist paramilitary groups who'd been subject to a bunch of drugs busts up and around North Belfast, ignited what started as pockets of pretty orchestrated, according to the police, loyalist neighbourhood violence which has now spread onto, as you said in the introduction, onto the peace line in West Belfast. So there are a number of things sloshing around in the background, but the Brexit process is there. It has unbalanced the kind of constitutional ambiguity that was at the heart of the Good Friday Agreement. And now, to use the phrase, everyone is trying to put the genie back in the bottle, but it is extremely difficult. Jonathan Powell, the possibility of Brexit inflaming communal tensions was predictable and predicted To what extent is that a factor, do you think, in the ugly scenes we've seen this week? It it is a factor, I'm afraid. As you say, it was predicted. Tony Blair and John Major went to Northern Ireland during the referendum campaign and said, someone's going to get hurt by Brexit. If you have the decision to leave the single market and the customs union, you have to have a border somewhere. You can't magic borders away. So there would either have to be a border in the island of Ireland or a border in the Irish Sea, one or the other. Theresa May, to her credit, tried to come up with a third option, but that never worked. So Boris Johnson, in order to get a deal, decided to go for a border in the Irish Sea. He told the people in Northern Ireland there wouldn't be a border, they wouldn't have to fill in forms. So the initial reaction to it in 2019, when he signed the deal, was fairly muted. Arlene Foster talked about having the best of both worlds. But as the impact of this type of Brexit and this border came home to people at the beginning of this year, when they weren't able to get what they wanted in the supermarkets, then opinion got more inflamed. And then you saw the rise of the TUV, the other unionist party, the more extreme unionist party, and the DUP losing votes and actually falling behind Sinn Féin. So Sinn Féin would have become the biggest party. And that galvanised them into start attacking the protocol and demanding its repeal. The problem is they're demanding its repeal, but they have no alternative. So this is a hot issue. The unionists have a point that their interests have been affected by what Boris Johnson has done. He has made it more tenuous to be part of the United Kingdom by putting this border in place, which will, over time, if the UK diverges further from EU regulation, it hasn't very much so far, but if it diverges further, that border will get wider. 
and Northern Ireland will have to look for its economic interests more and more to Dublin and to Brussels. So that's the problem. It's underneath the surface and it is a real problem. So this was Brandon Lewis, the Northern Ireland Secretary this week, speaking to the BBC about the operation of the Northern Ireland Protocol. Over the first few months of this year, there were real issues around how the protocol has landed for people, both as consumers and those in the unionist, loyalist community, that sense of identity. The way to deal with these things is through a diplomatic, democratic, political process. There is no legitimisation or excuse for taking to violence. Peter, bring us up to speed on where talks are between Britain and the EU on how to make the Northern Ireland Protocol work effectively. So earlier last month, the British government unilaterally extended these grace periods on the Northern Ireland Protocol, which requires all goods going from Great Britain into Northern Ireland to follow EU customs rules. Now, one of the things to remember is that those rules haven't actually started to be applied in most circumstances, the export health certificates, the rules on meat products, etc. There were a whole load of grace periods. In the UK, extended them, that triggered a legal action from the EU who demanded that the Brits produce a roadmap. Now, the British haven't done that. They've produced what's called a work programme. And at the moment, the European Commission is looking at the work programme and looking at ways in which both sides can, within the legal limits of the protocol, which does indeed require all goods going into Northern Ireland to follow EU rules, within those legal limits where they can find flexibilities to make it work. But I think it's still true to say that actually both sides have a fundamentally different concept of how these rules are going to be applied. I think the British feel that the unique circumstances of Northern Ireland and Northern Ireland's place inside the UK's internal market needs to be given much more respect, much more cognizance by the EU side. So there are still some really quite difficult issues to work out, particularly as the hospitality industry opens up after COVID. They will not get the kind of exemptions that the supermarket trade has had the extent to which the EU wants to force supply chains to reorientate into the Republic, which, of course, increases the sense that Northern Ireland is inching back into the orbit of the European Union, which will embolden nationalists in their belief that they're going to move towards a border pole. All this stuff, whilst very technical, is deeply tied up in the political dynamics in Northern Ireland. And Jonathan, how do you think London and Brussels have behaved this year when it comes to actually making this new arrangement work in practice? Well, I think they behave badly, to be honest, both of them, but particularly the British government. I mean, I think the British government suits them to make this confrontational. I think some in the EU fear, because trust has broken down so badly, Boris Johnson is actually trying to do is to demonstrate the protocol can't work and then force the EU to put a border in the Celtic Sea, to actually take Ireland out of the single market and the customs union and have them have to have a border as well as a way of solving their problem. Now, I hope that's not the case. I hope they're going to try and make it work. And what both sides should really do is they should sit down together and they should approach this in a pragmatic way, see if they can make it work, maybe do something on phytosanitary standards. It's in everyone's interest. Otherwise, we will have a continuing problem in Northern Ireland. John, can I ask you about the role of the US in all this? Because obviously the United States played a key role as you were trying to broker the Good Friday Agreement back in the late 1990s. Do you think that Joe Biden's got an important role to play in all this? I do, yes. No, he's been consistently a supporter of the Good Friday Agreement and, of, and cares about it very deeply, as do many in his administration, as do many in Congress. So I think they can help, and they've piled in now, along with the Taoiseach and a rather belated intervention by Boris Johnson, a bit like on COVID. He always leaves these things too late. I mean, leaving it to even have a tweet seems a step too far, but at least now he's on the case. And I do think it's going to require engagement by the British government, the Irish government, with the support of the US government and the EU to calm this down, to avoid a really hot summer, which is the danger here. And Peter, how do you think the politicians in Northern Ireland have 
responded to the crisis. We know that obviously the Northern Ireland Assembly was reconvened for an emergency session this week. Do you think both sides are doing their best to sort of calm tensions? Well, to a point, you have a difficulty here, which is that all of the unionist parties have called for the resignation of the chief constable of Northern Ireland. So whilst they tell demonstrators not to demonstrate and not to cause violence and they deplore the attacks on the rank and file, more than 50 PSNI officers have been injured, they are calling for the leadership of the police service of Northern Ireland to resign. I think that is a very difficult space to be in. You know, one of the kind of paradoxes about Northern Ireland is that the centre ground, the Alliance Party, is making great strides, both in terms of sort of social mores. The unaligned centre of Northern Ireland is growing all the time, even as the orange and green wings get more strident. And therefore, you do have politicians saying the right things about the violence, but that's quite hard to square with where Sinn Féin and the DUP and the TUV are rhetorically with their own base. Hmm. The thing we have to remember about the protocol is that nobody has an alternative. The EU don't have an alternative. If the British stand their ground and say, we're not going to have soil checks on bulbs going from Bedford to Belfast, what's the EU going to do about it? Are they going to put a north-south border in? Are they going to put, as Jonathan says, a a Celtic Sea border in? I don't believe that they are. But by the same token, Boris Johnson doesn't have an alternative to the protocol. He is a joint custodian of the Good Friday Agreement. A north-south border is unconscionable on all sides. And so... Everyone has to get back from denialism and find a way to make the protocol work that protects the EU single market, that recognises the risk, which are at the moment very small, both economically and in terms of animal and plant standards, and tries to diffuse everything so that the unionist community feels that they can, to some extent, have the best of both worlds. And we can get back to making this a technocratic, not a political fight. Peter, we talked a lot about Brexit in this context of what's been happening in Northern Ireland, but many of the rioters this week were teenagers. Is there any indication that this violence has been directed by older, more organised paramilitary elements? I think that's absolutely the case. You know, the police service of Northern Ireland have said that these paramilitary groups are essentially criminal groups that span out of the old terrorist groups, effectively, are orchestrating this. And if you talk to people in Northern Ireland, they'll tell you that a lot of these groups have these people on a string. And I think the worry is that this is only a taste of what's to come. As Jonathan says, you know, once you start the summer marching season, which has been pretty muted in recent years, there is a danger if the situation can't be settled by all sides, there's a danger that that will become really, really difficult. And I think lots of work needs to be done and needs to be done quickly if that's not to happen. And Jonathan, finally, the deal you helped broker in Belfast 23 years ago has been the bedrock of the political process ever since. Taking the long view, are you impressed with the longevity of what was agreed on Good Friday 1998? And is it now at risk? Yes, I do think it has served us well over the last 20 plus years. I think that the Good Friday Agreement has been shown to work. There have been lots of ups and downs. It was very hard to get it implemented. It didn't happen overnight on Good Friday 1998, I assure you. It was nine years more negotiations before we got the institutions up and running and they've fallen over again since. I think there is a specific problem with the loyalists, that the loyalists got left behind in many ways by this. They're left behind economically and socially. You have the lowest levels of educational attainment anywhere in Europe in some of the loyalist ghettos in Belfast. And they're also left behind politically. They had a very charismatic spokesman, Davy Irvine, during the negotiations, but he sadly died after that. They don't have the numbers of voters to get political representation, and the DUP doesn't really speak for them, even if it sometimes suits the DUP what they do. So I think while we should definitely crack down on the criminals, and these riots were started by criminal elements in loyalism, 
using 12 and 13 year old children to go out and riot because the police were being relatively successful against their drug dealing businesses. But then it took off in a bigger way. And it fed on this tinder that's underneath there, these various political discontents we've been talking about. And I think turning our backs on the loyalists would be a mistake. We do need to find a way of reaching out to them to try and help economically and socially in these deprived areas, but also to try and give them a political voice so they can talk about their problems rather than having things happening to them. We didn't really succeed in that in government. I've tried subsequently to do little things to try and help. The Irish government in particular have done a lot of things to try and reach out to loyalism, but we should not give up just because the criminal elements are in charge of many of these local groups. They should be dealt with by the police very, very fiercely. That politically, we should not turn our backs. Jonathan and Peter, thank you very much for joining us and thanks earlier to Clive and Jasmine. And that's it for this week's episode of Payne's Politics. If you like the podcast, we'd recommend subscribing. You can find us through all the usual channels, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts and your smart speaker. We've been Payne's Politics for over six months and we'd love to hear your comments on the show. Payne's Politics was presented today by me, George Parker, and produced by Anna Dedder and Josh Delamere. Sound engineer is Breen Turner and the editor, Liam Nolan. The biggest names in tennis are coming to Paris for the most anticipated Roland Garros in years. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. Experience three weeks of unparalleled tournament access as the world's top players in tennis face off against each other. Will the veteran champions continue their dominance or will a fresh face emerge to challenge their legacy on the clay courts? Daily live coverage of this epic showdown begins Monday, May 20th. Don't miss a matchup. Stream it now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.